ask permission of all the energies of this place, Wat Mokjan, and also the lay people, to give a talk this afternoon. And it's uh, quite nice that I'm back here. I'm able to come back here. I wasn't actually sure if my schedule would work out to come back here, but it did for uh, Tana Jinanun's birthday time. It'll be here until the 1st of April. And just over a month ago, I uh, last gave a talk here when there was an online retreat. And there are people here in person as well. And that was before I was going to this India trip. So I was talking about some of my determinations and going into that trip. Of course, not knowing what was going to happen. So now is a good time to have a sort of debrief and talk about what did actually happen, how it did actually play out. And it brings up various reflections about determination in our own practice and the importance of determination. The word is aditana. That can, it can be interpreted in various ways. And so what does that mean for our practice? How is it useful for us? And how does it help us with the various practices that we take on? Because I do think it's a very important underlying quality with whatever we're practicing. So these, these practices that we do of whether it's metta practice or a suba practice or death contemplation or any other practice that the Buddha recommended, Buddha Nusati, recollection of the Buddha, Dhamma Nusati, recollection of the Dhamma, Sangha Nusati, recollection of the Sangha, these are, all of these have an underlying, however they're going to play out, the, all these practices are very important, but they'll, what's underlying them is our determination or the intention we bring to the practice. And so this sense of determination and perseverance are qualities that will determine whether or not all of those other practices succeed. So this is super important to be cultivating. So that, that was very much the theme of this trip to India. And I, I was doing some, sometimes daily, sometimes every other day, audio updates, which I sent to not that many people. So um, I'll talk about just some of the highlights of, of the trip and then weave in some of the Dhamma themes that maybe I took away from it and hopefully inspire all of you to practice more and go beyond your self-created limitations because sometimes we stay in our we have a certain comfort zone that we like to stay in and we might feel that it's actually useful to stay within that comfort zone we don't want to push the boundaries too much because we might feel irritated or tired or we might feel exhausted or feel that we're struggling and yet it's actually necessary to push ourselves in that way and it's only natural that obstructive states and defilements will be brought up when we push ourselves in that way. And that's really how we learn how to see them. <clears throat> if we don't ever push ourselves in that way, they remain hidden and we end up settling for a state of mediocrity in our practice. And so certainly all of the Kruba Ajans, whether it was Lumpur Cha or Tanajananan or any of the Western Ajans, Lumpur Samedo and all of the others, Lumpur Pasano, 
trying to push ourselves out of our self-perceived limits. And this is really how we see the defilements, how we see dukkha, so important. And yes, we can stay within our comfort zone. And we will, if we practice mindfulness within our comfort zone, we will have a better life. We will have a bit more well-being and a bit more happiness, and that's good too. So if that's all we're able to do at this point, that's better than not doing any practice at all, certainly. But we can do better. We can do better, and that, that takes the determination to practice. And it takes faith, sadha, and not just faith in Buddha, but faith in ourselves to be able to do it. Faith as a quality in and of itself. It takes that to have the courageousness to do these determinations, make these determinations. So going into the India trip, my original determination was, uh, which I announced in my last talk here, <clears throat> still have some of India inside of me. Which I know from my last talk here was to, and it was a determination I had made before when I was last in India that I eventually would do, was to do a three steps, one bow practice and bowing Tibetan style, full body prostration, stomach onto the ground, head touching the ground and then back up, a three steps, one bow, circumambulating the outer circumambulation bath of the Mahabodhi stupa and do 10,000 of those bows. And because I had a month, that's quite a bit of time. I also added in to do 108 hours of sitting meditation in, in the complex and close to the Bodhi tree. So there's those two determinations. So the way it played out was I was a bit uh, nervous about the three steps, one bow, because I know it's a public park, it's a public area. And so doing three steps, one bow is a, it's a marble path for those who aren't familiar with it. There's a marble uh, pathway around. There's like, it, it's kind of far away from the stupa. So to do three steps, one Tibetan style bow around the, the stupa takes about 45 minutes to do one round and that's roughly 200 bows. And so I could easily keep count by say doing one round and that's 200 bows. And, but it's also <clears throat> doing this is also a workout. So probably about a quarter of the way through the first round, I'm sweating quite a bit. And so it's uncomfortable. And then also the ground is not very clean. A lot of people, you can still keep your shoes on, on that outer walking path. So people have their shoes on, they've come from outside and the path is swept, but it isn't always mopped. It's only mopped every once in a while, not certainly not every day. And so the path is dusty and stomach front, front is getting dusty and I'm wearing gloves. So my hands can slide. That's getting dusty. Forehead's getting dusty trying to breathe out on the one going down. So I'm not breathing in the dust, but even so there's a, the dust is just hovering from everybody walking, bowing. There's a lot of people walking both sides. So you kind of people's feet are always scuffing 
next to your head. And it's, uh, I found it to be a pretty difficult practice, but I did do it. But then after three days, I got quite ill with, with a strong flu and fever and was bedridden for two whole days. I was completely bedridden. And then when I was recovering from it, I was able to do some meditation, but couldn't do any of the bowing. And then when I recovered well enough, and it was maybe then one weekend, I had actually only done three full days of bowing, so that's 600 bows a day. So that was 1800 bows that I had done up to that point before I was sick and then I fell ill. I think it's possibly picked up something in the airport or it could have been the dust that was just in the air, the nanoparticleized excrement that hovers over that path all the time. And so I, then I, I recovered well enough. My energy came back. I was able to get back out there and keep getting my, my doing more bows on the three steps, one bow style or on the path. Uh, but then I had this raging sore throat. So it, that didn't harm my energy, but it was just an added handicap in terms of being something painful that I had to deal with while I continued these bows. And this sore throat was just um, very difficult for me to deal with it because it was hard to swallow. It's kind of like this, this experience of swallowing glass. Every time I even took a drink of water, it was just agonizing. And I remember we would have a, a light breakfast each day. We'd take a break at 7 a.m. and have a light breakfast. And so I would do the bowing in the morning time when it was the coolest. And after two rounds, we'd have a light breakfast and then I would do one more round. And so having this breakfast and being tired from the bowing. And I remember when it was at its worst, I just was trying to eat just some nuts and a hard boiled egg. And I, tears were coming out of my eyes because it was so painful and it was just agonizing and I couldn't eat very much. So, then I, that, ended, that ended up lasting for about five days, having to deal with that kind of pain, ended up having to take some antibiotics. Uh, and that's a little side story in and of itself, which is I went with uh, Gautam, who many of you may be familiar with. He's Ajanachalo's Indian adopted son who helps look after us in Bodh Gaya. He's 22 now, super good guy, very pure hearted. Uh, took me to a local doctor in Bodhgaya. <clears throat> so we went down these little alleyways, down into these kind of corridors and down some steps into a grotty little doctor's office with medical instruments that looked like they were taken out of the 1950s. And went and saw a nice middle-aged upright Indian doctor in this office. He diagnosed me with tonsillitis and gave me like all these different types of antibiotics to take. And then the next day it was like 50% better as such a relief. So amazing once you're sick and then you're free from that sickness. And so my, my reflection being freed from that horrible sore throat was, it's like the second hindrance of anger, the second hindrance. So you have the five hindrances to meditation, you have Sensual, sensual desire, uh, anger and ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt, 
And the Buddha gives analogies for each one as to what it's like. And he says, anger is like sickness. Anger is like a sickness. And freedom from anger is like becoming well again. And uh, the other ones, in case you're curious, the sensual desire is like being in debt. Freedom from sensual desire is like being freed from debt. Anger is sickness. Freedom from anger is being freed from sickness. Uh, sloth and torpor <coughs> is like being <coughs> uh, being in prison. Freedom from sloth and torpor is like being freed from prison. Restlessness and remorse is like being a being a slave. Freedom from restlessness is like freedom from slavery. Uh, doubt is like walking through the desert. And freedom from doubt is like getting to the end of the desert, no longer having and making safe passage across the desert, reaching the other side. Those are the analogies to what the Buddha gives in one sutta in terms of describing those five hindrances and what it's like to be freed from them. <clears throat> so that became my reflection, being freed from this sore throat. It was such a relief, so wonderful, so marvelous, just to not have to have that much pain while swallowing anymore. And I remember feeling supercharged then, doing this three steps, one bow. Once I was not sick anymore, just feeling like, wow, I have so much energy. This is so great. And it was, I mean, I was like that when I arrived, but then with that reflection on having been sick and then freed from that sickness, I got these bursts of energy. And so I ended up doing a total of 3,000 bows in that style of three steps, one bow. Uh, and of course, my, my original determination was to do 10,000 in that style. But after doing 3,000, I, I did a day of just meditation of nine hours of sitting meditation through the, through the entire day. And I reflected on, on that. And I reflected that, well, if I continue doing this, there's a very real danger that I'll get sick again. If I keep going on that path, three, three steps, one bow. And I think I need to adapt my determination. And the reflection that came up was, <clears throat> uh, it's a much more extreme example, but the Buddha himself making the determination as a bodhisattva to do austerities. And <clears throat> doing the austerities, taking it to a certain point, but even though he made the determination to do certain austerities, when he was at the verge of death, which is of course much way more extreme example, but it, it was a reflection that came from my mind. He actually did adapt. He actually did say that wasn't working and he actually did adapt and he tried something else and he was able to relinquish them. He didn't just keep going with it when, it, when he saw that it wasn't working. So I did, after, after those 3,000 bows of three steps, one bow, I did, I did adapt to then doing them in a stationary format where I actually had a, I acquired a bowing, like the Tibetan practitioners that use these like linoleum, a little roll of linoleum, which your hands can slide on. You use these hand sliders and a pad for your knees and stomach. And I set up a little spot for myself where I was bowing towards the, facing the, Mahabodhi Stupa and continued in that format. And I, I felt a bit bad about it 
about changing the determination to that because that wasn't in line with what my original determination was. But I also felt it was, it was actually wise to do because if I was to continue in my original format, uh, there was a very realistic possibility of getting sick again and not finishing any of the determinations at all. And so <clears throat> I continued in that format, uh, bowing in place. Soon after I changed, I got sick again. Anyway, I got food poisoning. So I was laid up in bed again thinking, okay, I need to do such and such many bows and I've made this determination. I need to do such and such many hours of meditation and I don't know how long I'm going to be sick for. So I was laying there in bed, sick with food poisoning and vomiting and just having to be in my room at the guest house. And so <clears throat> no energy at all thinking, I need to get back to the temple. I need to get back to the temple. So my mind was leaning in that direction, inclining in that direction. But the body was just no energy. It wasn't realistic to go back. I, I just couldn't get myself to move. So I had a whole other day of just laying there. And then in the morning, I felt a little bit better was able to go back and do some meditation and having to gauge how much I could meditate, how much I could do these, these prostrations. And I remember then after that food poisoning, doing very slow prostrations and just, just very slowly. And I got really into it. I had to, I had to adapt again. I had to do them more slowly. And it is, it is a workout. You're doing kind of a half push up back up, going down, half push up, down, half push up, back up, and trying to keep a mantra in mind is keeping Namo Sakyamuni Buddha, Namo Sakyamuni Buddha, Namo Sakyamuni Buddha in mind while doing these, having a little counter on my finger for counting the number. And even though I was doing that very slowly, I, that day after I had the food poisoning, I was able to do a, a thousand prostrations in one day. So sometimes I surprised myself by, by going out of that comfort zone a bit and despite sickness, despite weakness and not through forcing myself in any way, it was more through sattha, more through faith and, and determination and just the perseverance of doing it more slowly, conserving the energy and moving forward in that, in that way, I was still able to then eventually by the end of the trip complete all of the determinations still with two days to spare. So I was able to finally complete these determinations. Now, in a way, uh, these things are kind of interesting how they happen, especially at Bodhgaya. I always have the feeling the Buddha, the Buddha, the Buddha's Barami is really there. And that is really where the Buddha attained full enlightenment. And it's a very special location. And in a way we're receiving teachings all the time when, when we're in that location, actually we're receiving teachings all the time in any location, but especially when we go to Bodhgaya, it's sort of heightened and receiving teachings in a way I felt that upon reflection now that actually shifting my determination to bowing in place was, was also humbling for me in that when I finally completed it, I wasn't necessarily rejoicing, but there was this very sober sense of, okay, this is, this is what the practice takes and this is how I have to move. 
this is a teaching of how I have to move forward in my own practice, moving on, returning to Thailand, uh, in, and then in July, eventually, when, if and when I reach, am able to return to Obayagiri in July, then how I have to move forward with that sense of perseverance and determination in any situation. So it's cultivating a certain mental attitude towards life, and that when there is obstacles that arise, that we can actually overcome them. But what it takes is the mind has to incline towards, towards the practice. So that's why it's helpful to have, okay, I'm going to do a certain chant every day, or I'm going to do a certain amount of meditation every day. And when we determine that, then the mind inclines towards, okay, I haven't done it yet. I need to get there. I need to do it. I need to get away. I need to do the sitting meditation. I need to get away and do the, do the walking meditation. It's very important. And to not let other things eclipse that. And even if we have to say, even if we're with a friend and, and social pressure is very, probably one of the main factors that will keep us from practicing. Actually, social pressure is something, a very powerful influencer in our lives. We can have good social pressure. That's what we call Kalyanamitta. We have good social pressure, our friends who are getting us to meditate more, our teachers who are getting us to keep better virtue, keep us meditating more, keep us making determinations, keep us practicing, keeping us on the path. Those are Kalyanamitta. But then our ordinary friends will tend to uh, cause us maybe to lean away from that a bit more. And so we have to find skillful means that we don't change. We don't want to offend our, our friends and we don't want to offend our associates by saying, well, you know, being kind of like, well, I'm going to go meditate. And our friends might think, well, what does that say about me? I'm not going to meditate. And so we don't want to be like that. But we can say things like, oh, I have a special engagement or I have a prearranged engagement I'm going to, which is our meditation. We have a prearranged engagement with our meditation, but we don't have to say, well, I'm, I'm going to go meditate now. Say, okay, well, I've, uh, I've got an appointment or I've got a prearranged arrangement. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, no problem, no problem. And then we, we find these opportunities to, to fulfill our determinations. Now, when we do certain practices, and we take on certain practices, I, I wanted to focus on metta practice for a little bit um, because it is something that helps the mind to be incredibly wholesome and thus can help us bolster up our determinations. Uh, normally, and I'm just speaking from experience uh, for myself, tending, tending to go about our lives in a state of either low or high level, either subtle or extreme judgment and criticism in our mind all the time, and that, that is unwholesome. And it's normal, so not to judge and criticize ourselves more for having that. It is very normal, very ordinary, very common. And everybody has the defilements except the, the Arhants and the Buddhas. So, so it is very normal, natural to have these things. But it is good to know that it causes suffering and how do we work with it? How do we, how do we come out of it? So I tend to prefer actually Ajahnachalo's translation of metta, which is non-judgmental awareness. We try to cultivate, we actually, and this comes through meditation as well. The metta can come about naturally when we meditate a lot, when all of our worries and problems fall away through sitting a lot, meditating a lot. And finally, we stop thinking about all the issues in the world that can be thought about. Finally, we stop, the judgmental critical mind takes a little break. And finally, we're able to say, okay, 
oh, what a relief. There is no problem right now. There's just no problems. There's nothing to worry about. And the mind is uplifted. And that's the wholesome mind. That's when the wholesome mind arises. And that's good to note. And when the wholesome mind arises, then there's temporarily a lack of suffering. There's temporarily a lack of grief. There's temporarily a lack of, you could even say trauma, low-level trauma that always seems to be coming at us through, through the news, through just the types of things we tend to think about, through, or even through just being critical of other people, other practitioners who aren't, maybe aren't practicing correctly according to how we think people should practice. So the judgmental critical mind takes a little break. And that's, for myself, that's how I think about metta practice. So that's uh, metta arising in a very natural way. Uh, I do think about it in another way as well, that you can consciously reflect on metta, you can consciously cultivate it, and you can cultivate it for yourself. Um, I had an experience in my ninth vasa where I was on retreat by myself in a small monastery and I was able to, I was thinking about how do you actually have metta for yourself and trying to cultivate it, doing these phrases of may you be well, may, may I be well, may I be happy, may I be at ease, and doing walking meditation for many hours. And these phrases just kind of falling flat for me and not having much benefit. And I am someone who tends to be judgmental and critical of myself, i.e. not have metta for myself. So I did see even at that time that this needs to be done. And it was, it was not happening. It was difficult. So there was some sort of obstruction. There was some sort of block there. But I was reflecting on it, contemplating it. Why, why can't I have metta for myself? And the judgmental critical mind comes up. I mean, this is backing up to when I was in Anagarika, when I was a Pakau in uh, 2001 in Vaikiri. And I was, I was journaling at that time. I would keep a journal. And I remember filling up a notebook with what I thought was some pretty good writing but then going back and reading it and every single writing was me criticizing myself. And I thought it was a good thing. I thought, okay, I'm gonna stamp out my faults. I'm gonna keep this determination, that determination of you know, not, not taking nampana or, or just uh, trying, to, trying to stay up all night for several nights straight, you know, noble things on paper, but it all came from a judgmental critical attitude. It wasn't coming from metta for myself. So that, that attitude, it did get weaker, but it was only when I was nine bosses that I could actually see it more clearly that I have to, this is something to cultivate, to actually let go of that judgmental critical mind, or at least be able to do it temporarily. Because it, I found it, it was draining on me and it, it sapped my vitality to actually have that attitude all the time, or if not all the time, just having it often. And I remember, laying down that night after a full day of trying to have metta for myself and actually starting to think, still thinking and pondering about it. Uh, like Master Xuan Hua said, if we want to really achieve something, we have to be cultivating it on the path, on the pillow and on the pot. So thinking and cultivating, thinking about this all the time, getting, getting my mind around it and laying down kind of just 
on, on in bed and thinking, you know, uh, this is interesting. Why, why isn't this working? And then started actually developing some wisdom around it in terms of seeing how I didn't have metta for myself. And then that's when it got interesting. And then I had this very heart opening experience, which is metta. So, so reflecting on that experience and, and it felt really good. And that judgmental critical mind did fall away at that time. And I believe I had some insight into metta practice at that time. And the heart was very full. There was a sense of fulfillment. There was a sense of no problem, no worries. So when I reflect on that type of an experience, I actually also translate metta as love, because when people say they fall in love, that's the type of experience they're describing. And yet, when we have metta for ourselves, we're no longer dependent on some exterior force. Uh, we're no longer dependent on something outside of ourselves for that feeling. We actually can cultivate that for ourselves. And if we don't cultivate that for ourselves, it's very difficult to live long-term as an ordained practitioner. So metta practice, non-judgmental awareness, love, this is something we can actually cultivate for ourselves and actually spread towards ourselves. If we're not able to do it, we're going to look for it outside. We're going to still look for it in the, in the fulfillment of desire, or, you know, you might meet someone who you really connect with, who ends up, you end up marrying. There's going to be that feeling of, of love, that heart opening, that heart experience. And yet that very same thing we can cultivate for ourselves. And it's so important. And I think it's one of the reasons uh, some monks end up not sticking with the training is because, because that sense of metta for oneself maybe hasn't been cultivated to that point. So if we want to practice something like a subhakamatana or death contemplation, contemplating the imagining ourselves as a corpse or imagining ourselves growing old and eventually dying. And this can be very helpful as well for cutting off thoughts of the past and the future, bringing ourselves back into the present. The asubhakamatana, the contemplation of the unattractive nature of the body for the insight into not-self. The Tanajan Anand was alluding to this, talking about this at the mealtime talk today. And these practices are incredibly important to be cultivating and focusing on. But we do have to have that determination to do them every day and to actually focus on them and just to, to couch them in terms of metta, in terms of not bringing that judgmental critical mind to it. Like it's so common for us and like for, for myself as a Westerner, like, uh, no, you still can't do it. You're still no good. You've been practicing this. You're just, you're just too dumb to get it. And that, that's that judgmental critical mind getting in there. Part of us thinks it's a good thing. That's why we still do it. Part of, that's how we're kind of brought up to stamp out our bad qualities through the judgments and criticisms. 
but then the judgment and criticism itself is a bad quality. So the only way to get, get rid of it is with metta, by just dropping it. And the only way to do that is through meditating a lot, practicing a lot. We can't just do it by an act of will. It doesn't work that way. If we could just do it by an act of will or just by doing a quick fix, a quick technique, uh, it would be so great if that was the case. We wouldn't have to undergo years of practice and running up against walls and obstacles before we figure it out that, oh, it's just this, I just have to be kind to myself. Uh, and that empowers us, that, that gives us the ability to keep moving on. The change positions, my left knee is hurting since this India trip. <clears throat> I'd also like to share just uh, near near the end here of this talk, just a um, some of the experience that, that surprised me about doing Tibetan-style prostrations. As a Theravadan monk, we w normally wouldn't do this because it's very difficult to, particularly wearing the robes. Uh, I, do th I do know there was one, so having to actually not have the robe on, set the robe aside for doing these particular prostrations. I remember Lumpur Cha seeing people doing these prostrations one time early on at Wat Bapong, Tibetan practitioners visiting Wat Nong and he, he was kind of, he made a cheeky comment, oh yeah, that's, that's really good, putting forth a lot of effort, and for a, a, a day or so, people thought he was going to change the rule at Wat Bapong that people would have to do full body prostrations because he liked, he liked them so much, but, but he ended up not doing that. But one, one thing was, I actually found, uh, like the, the actual effect of doing these, um, it wasn't just about getting to some big number, but it was about like, what's, what's the experience like of actually doing these. And, uh, I found mental clarity. It was really great for mental clarity. I found when I was got really in a rhythm of doing these Tibetan style prostrations in a balanced way, pushing myself, but not doing them too fast or too slow. Then the mental clarity that came up was quite nice, uh, quite pleasant and a good foundation for the sitting meditation. And, and then with the long sitting, if I decided I would stop and sit for a day for eight, nine or a couple days for 10 hours, then doing four or five hours in the morning and be doing between four and six hours in the afternoon of sitting meditation, taking little breaks to visit the bathroom facilities and found uh, the interesting thing about that is even though my, my own mind uh, doesn't incline towards deep samadhi, I'm, I'm someone who thinks a lot and yes, the mind does grow somewhat quiet sometimes, but nothing super deep or super profound, yet still just going with butto, 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 and cultivating mindfulness, looking at the feelings in the body, 
and looking into the hindrances, overcoming the hindrances, just doing that for hours on end. And even though there maybe may not have been a profound state of absorption, I would end the day and I'd feel really good, really solid, really good. And, and that to me is, that's, that's what we need to be cultivating. If we have the expectation for a really profound experience, we're in a way we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. You might think, oh, my mind didn't get into such and such a jhana, such and such a state. And maybe I'm not on the path. Maybe I'm doing it wrong. Maybe I got the technique wrong. But when we practice a lot, the mind will learn at its own pace. That's very important to know. The mind will learn at its own pace and it'll be based on our own parami, our own spiritual qualities that we've built up over this lifetime and, and of course, past lifetimes. So when we have determinations to practice, if we practice more than we think we can, yes, there are times we should stop. If the mind is getting very tight, maybe we should stop and go out and drop a meditation object, look at the clouds or something. But we actually can go further than we think. Yeah. And this is the mind will tend to feel very solid. We'll feel firm and stable if we're able to do that. So these are just a few reflections on my trip to India. I'm actually very happy to be back. India is not a Buddhist country. Even though you have these incredible holy sites there, India is not a Buddhist country. And just to, gosh, leaving India, there's that same feeling. Just took so long to get through the Gaia airport. And there's so many checkpoints and they're so slow and they're checking your bag for, they're just like making you pull everything out of your bag. and. Then there's another checkpoint and, and just, uh, it just seemed to happen so slowly and uh, getting on the plane and, oh, what a relief going back to a Buddhist country and getting back to Bangkok and actually, um, so if anybody hasn't here, hasn't been to India, it's a very, very loud place. So I would get, I'd maybe recover from an illness or something and think, oh, tonight I'm going to get a good rest. And then there'd be a wedding. So these Indian weddings right next door to our guest house and the fireworks and loud drums until two in the morning. So one night I was startled awake by what sounded like gunshots right outside of my window. And it was fireworks they'd thrown up and they exploded right, out of, right outside of my window. And India is just, and everybody's honking all the time with the traffic and it's just crazy. And you kind of get numb to it if you're there for a month or longer. Getting back to Bangkok, I just felt like, oh, yeah, it's, it's so quiet here and orderly and clean. In, in Bangkok, I never, <laughs> in, in the past, I never thought of Bangkok in that way. But, but being in India, yeah, certainly coming to Bangkok, oh, so, so nice. Such a relief to come back. Happy to have gone. Sad to be leaving the Vajra Asana, but just so happy to be back in Thailand and happy to be back where all of my fellow practitioners are and back where the monasteries are with the Kruba Ajans. Oh, it's so wonderful to be here. It's such a good opportunity. Uh, and in closing, it's good to remind ourselves too, just what we do have here. It's not ordinary. It's not normal. 
And what we do have here is, is very, very precious, this opportunity to practice in a Buddhist country, in a place where people have attained insight and we get, we're able to hear the teachings, say, in this monastery of Tanachan and Nan, which are incredibly, I find to be incredibly clear and helpful. And it's, it's quite, quite a wonderful opportunity. So it's good to remind ourselves of that, buoy ourselves up. That can also help us, the, the cultivation of gratitude as to what we have can also help us to let go of that judgmental critical mind, that judgmental critical nature. So I, I hope these words are helpful for everybody and it can help you to be less judgmental and critical and more determined in your practice and cultivate more perseverance and helpful in terms of giving yourself quite a bit of encouragement to practice. So I'll leave it there. Thank you for the Dhamma talk. Um, it's actually exciting to, that you're here because just a few weeks ago, I've um, made some determination potentially to go to Abhayagiri to or with the thought of ordaining. So <laughs> it's funny that you're here in, in Thailand. Mm -hmm. um, but my question is, uh, I have sometimes a difficulty knowing what thinking to trust and what not to trust. And just, I don't know exactly how to form it as a question, but like in making a determination, what, how do you know that it's a correct determination? And maybe just in, as long as it's towards practice, it's right or? Yeah, yeah, what the question is what thinking to trust and not to trust. It's a very good question because it, at first, it's good to not trust almost any of it, and it's a it's a great blessing to have the Vinaya and the Buddha's rules and code of conduct to follow, and it's a great blessing to be in a monastery as well because we don't actually have to think very much. We just have to follow the schedule, and the thinking is more something that's coming up, and we can watch it more like a movie, like we're reflecting on it. You know, we're going to have all sorts of thoughts like, uh, I, th I don't know about this monastery or oh, the Ajahn did this and that was kind of strange. Or, uh, and so the very best, I mean, Lumpur Cha can be quoted saying the quickest way to enlightenment is to point at all of your thoughts and say liar. And, but the way I, I also have a bit of interpretation about that is over time, as the mind gets more wholesome, yes, some of those thoughts will be trustworthy. And over time, something I've learned just for myself is that the more unwholesome the mind is, the more the mind will lie to you. But as the mind becomes more wholesome and you cultivate more metta and the mind starts to, to develop in the meditation and it will be a bit more trustworthy. So the wholesome mind tends to be more trustworthy and the unwholesome mind is definitely not trustworthy. So, so say, but that takes meditation practice to start to see okay what is anger like what is greed like the buddha said you know we had the buddha to tell us those are unwholesome states it would be so hard to figure out on our own so it's a great blessing that we have the buddha's teachings so and what is anger like taking anger as an example okay well if i believe that those thoughts of irritation or anger and i even act on those is that suffering or is that not suffering. 
So really the focus has to be uh, seeing the suffering, seeing if our mental states cause suffering. So if we're meditating and we've got some sort of mental proliferation that starts going and then it's been going for 30 minutes or so and then we notice we're, our face is all puckered up and we're very, very tense, that's a state of suffering. And so when we see that state of suffering, we can say, oh, that mental state caused suffering. So that's really, we can simplify it to that. And then we can consciously calm, consciously ease it and see, okay, let's calmly go back to this meditation object, whether it was the feeling of the breath or Bhutto, mentally reciting Bhutto. We can take it back to that when we notice that. That's both the cultivation of mindfulness and the cultivation of wisdom. It's how we slowly learn little by little. And if we're gonna suffer a lot in the course of the practice, but it's the suffering that leads to the ending of suffering. If we're able to see that way, the Buddha, the Buddha classed things as unwholesome if they lead to suffering. And he classed them as wholesome when they lead to happiness and liberation. So the, in the suttas, like from an academic aspect, the jhanas being very heavy, wholesome states that are very, very uh, ripe and full and heavy in terms of the wholesome. And then the, uh, there's also very heavy, unwholesome states, like really strong, like acting on really strong anger, for example, like attacking somebody. That would be like a very, very unwholesome. That would be the other side of the spectrum. So it, it really just comes with time and experience to know what to trust. And, and there's going to be times when you trust the wrong things and that's okay. So we, we have to be very forgiving with ourselves as well. So that's why we have the, the teachings of the practitioners who've come before us. They can speak from experience to these things. And it still blows my mind that the Buddha figured these things out. I, I can't believe it without a, without a teacher. Yes, we do have the suttas, but without teacher, without live teachers and guides, I just don't, my own opinion is I don't, I don't think it would be possible to make much, much progress on the path. Like say, just using the suttas, because the suttas are also translations and you get the feeling of whoever translated which, which sutta, they might have very subtle biases or not so subtle. And it's just so helpful to say, have Lumpur Cha's teachings, for example, just to, to see, oh yeah, this is a practitioner who actually really overcame these things. And this was his experience and we can apply that to ourselves. Yeah. Very good question. Ajahn has a question online. Dear Ajahn, I'm unable to control my craving for sensual pleasures, such as delicious food. Sorry? <laughs> yeah. And such as delicious food and comfort. Sometimes I feel that my practice is taking two steps forward and one step backwards. Any advice, please? Thank you. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay if you enjoy delicious food. Uh, I also enjoy delicious food. That's why I'm getting fatter at this moment. But, uh, you know, it is, yes, yeah, you can say, well, there is this craving there. And, and the important thing is seeing the suffering of it. Um, but also, I think 
in this type of a case, what's causing more suffering is that, that judgment and criticism of ourselves. And it's really important to address that rather than the externals. Um, the Buddha is always pointing back to the heart. The Kurvajan is always pointing back to the heart. So what's important is when we eat delicious food, how do we react to it? Uh, yeah, we're, we might have craving for it. Uh, we, we, will have, we will have these types of cravings until very, very advanced levels of the path. And even, even very advanced practitioners, you know, anagamis will have preferences for food and like certain foods and not like other foods. It's not about not having likes and dislikes, but it's, it's more about not being a slave to them. So when you don't have that delicious food, what is it like for you? Contemplate that. How much do you suffer when it's not there? If you don't suffer very much when that delicious food is not there, if you're not able to get it, then you're already good. Uh, you already have that contentment that's built up. So if you, if you don't suffer very much when the food isn't there, then, then you have the food and yes, you enjoy it. You might delight in having that good food, but you're not actually as attached to it as you think you are. More of the problem is that habitual judging and criticizing yourself. So that that's really important to be addressing. Hi, Ajahn. May I know if doubt is an unwholesome state? As Buddha also taught us not to believe everything, we have not experienced it for ourselves. Thank you for your guidance. Yeah, doubt. Doubt in terms of the hindrances, yes, yes, doubt is unwholesome. Uh, yes, we don't want to blindly believe everything we see, hear, read, whatever, everything people tell us, but that's not what the Buddha means by doubt. Doubt is, doubt is perplexity as to what's wholesome and unwholesome in terms of the hindrances, and it really is, the Buddha uses that analogy of walking through a desert. You're, you're lost in the desert. So that's the analogy the Buddha uses for doubt, is, is you're lost in the desert and you, you don't really know which direction to go. It's just hot and uncomfortable, sand on all sides, and that's, that's doubt. The Buddha uses another analogy for doubt in another sutta where he uses different types of water or water in different states for each hindrance. And for the hindrance of doubt, it's like muddy water in the dark. So the water both isn't clean and it's in the dark. So you, you can't see because of the mud and you also can't see because it's dark. And the way to overcome doubt is not to answer the questions. So, so we have different doubts. Am I doing the right practice? Am I in the right place? Am I really supposed to be doing this? Is the Buddha really enlightened? Is there really past lives? Are these people, you know, what are these people talking about? So it's perplexity. And one way to understand what the Buddha is talking about when he talks about doubt, and the Pali word is vichikicha, when he's talking about doubt, we can think about the qualities of a sotapanna, of a streamager, one who's attained the first level of awakening in order to understand what doubt is in terms of what the Buddha is talking about. Yes, it is good to ask questions, asking questions and clearing up those types of doubts asking questions and clearing up those types of doubts is the path to wisdom. The Buddha talked about that and in the suttas, we're supposed to actually go to the teachers, ask questions, clear up those kind of doubts. Doubt as a hindrance is a hindrance to meditation. 
if it's there, the mind isn't going to go very deep. If it's there, the mind isn't going to be peaceful. And when we think about the qualities of a sotapanna, then doubt is one of the things that falls away. So a sotapanna no longer has doubt. And the Buddha describes that in two ways. One, he says, no longer, one is no longer in doubt of Buddha Dhamma Sangha, but also, and perhaps something I find more useful is that one is no, no longer perplexed as to what is a wholesome and unwholesome state. So when the doubt falls away, you have a clear sense of right and wrong, wholesome and unwholesome. And that again comes, comes through experience and through practice. And so, yes, it is good to clear up the types of doubts in terms of uh, what practice maybe I should be doing. Maybe you can talk with a uh, senior monk or a teacher who you trust. Then that's those types of doubts. Yes. Uh, remember uh, Tanajan Jeff of Wat Metta Monastery visited a Bayagiri just before I came to Thailand and we had a Q&A session with him and somebody asked about doubt. And I thought he answered it quite brilliantly. He said, well, there's two types of doubt. There's doubt that wants to be answered, and there's doubt that doesn't want to be answered. The doubt that doesn't want to be answered is the hindrance. The doubt that does want to be answered is, yeah, you have an actual question. It's help. It's going to give you some helpful knowledge. That's not a bad thing. That's good. However, the doubt that doesn't want to be answered is just that habitual mind state of doubt. And the only way to get rid of that is to see doubt as doubt. Answering the question is not going to put it into it. It's just going to have another question. And so people who are doubting types, who are constantly doubting, should I be here, shouldn't I be here, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, am I doing the right thing, and are unable to actually just drop that doubt within the, say, the monastic form, say if you ordain and you're in the monastic form, you can just drop that doubt and do the schedule and the meditation will develop, the practice will develop. But for doubting types, the mind is habitually locked on through clinging and attachment it's habitually locked on to, to that state of doubt. And it's just a state of doubt. It's not about, so we have the, and delusion is telling us, so doubt is a state of delusion in terms of the hindrances and delusion is telling us, if you just answer that question, you won't doubt anymore. But that's not the case. You answer the question, it just goes on to something else immediately. And that state of doubt is a great state of suffering. So we have to see the suffering of that doubt see the suffering of it. It's very, very important. Thank you, Ajahn. Ajahn, do you have um, time to take one more question or I, I think any, uh, appointments currently. So uh, however, however long people want to keep asking questions, I suppose. Uh, next question, uh, may I ask Ajahn, how do you continue to practice metta to oneself and others? In a Sangha, if you don't quite trust a um, parenthesis political Sangha member. Thank you. <clears throat> Again, this is something that comes about because the mind is still still tends toward the unwholesome. If we're going to, if we end up having that judgmental critical mind towards other people, say based on their political standing, as an example. When the mind gets really wholesome, there's not going to be a problem having metta for everybody. And so the, seeing the suffering of that is the important part, rather than focusing on the other person and hoping they're going to change. And, and they're, you know, we, we can only really change ourselves. We can't hope that other people are going to change. So from a Dhamma perspective, just coming back to that 
for ourselves, the non-judgmental critical mind. Long also said a good rule for practitioners is that we focus on ourselves 90% and on others 10%. So if we're focusing on others, unless you say you become, you gain insight or you become a teacher where you end up needing to focus on others more and other to teach them and help them be free of suffering themselves. That's a good rule of thumb. Focus on, focus on yourself 90%, others 10%. And if the focus on somebody else is just causing our mind to become more unwholesome, i.e. we're suffering over it, then to really look at the judgmental critical mind and to question ourselves uh, really uh, to to be able to reflect on ourselves, how are we relating to this and what's my experience of this? So, so it is, it is possible to do, but it is difficult. We're, we're kind of hardwired to be judgmental and critical of others. It's just something in the modern age. It's, it's the way of thinking that seems to have built up in the modern age. And it takes some, it takes a lot of time and practice to, undo that. And on a, on a side note, it is a very good reflection in these times because there is big uh, divisions in terms of people's, say, political opinions in the world and opinions about all sorts of things, that if somebody has a different opinion than us and we hold our opinion very strongly and the other person holds their opinion very strongly and they're very different, and we might think, like, I can't have meta for that person. It's not possible. And yet this is a good test for us to show us where we're at as practitioners. Somebody who disagrees with us, that's, or somebody who is, we see as maybe a threat, that's the very definition of an enemy. So metta towards enemies is, is one of the, actually one of the levels of metta that we're supposed to be able to cultivate. And if we're not able to do that, then that shows us that's, that's where we're at. We're not yet able to have metta for people who are who we see as a threat or who are disagreeable to us and uh, who are enemy is a strong word, but that's kind of the definition of enemy in terms of meta is someone who we see as a threat, someone who's disagreeable to us, someone who we find distasteful. We find their views distasteful, perhaps. Can we have goodwill for that person? And really, I think the way to do it is to, the mind actually has to be wholesome before we're able to do it. And for the mind to be wholesome and allow ourselves to do something like that, then we actually do need to drop the judgmental critical nature and be able to say, there's no problem. There's nothing to worry about in this moment. There's nothing to fix. It's just this body and mind that I'm practicing with. And so it's a very good way to relate to it. Rajan has a question on the guidance to practice Maha Satipatthana. Is it recommended to practice one by one or is it recommended to practice like all together or any general guidance? Yeah, Thank you. It, it's, it's really, uh, there are these different interpretations of it. I can just give my own opinion is that uh, I, I actually think of it not as the four foundations of mindfulness, but as the fourfold foundation of mindfulness. And so I think they're all linked together when you, of course, like somebody like Longpur Man, he focused in his recorded teachings anyway, he focused almost exclusively on mindfulness of the body. And a lot of the Kruba Ajans, they talk about just mindfulness of the body. And I do think Kayagata Sati leads into all of the others in that when you have mindfulness of the body, the body has feelings. And so mindfulness of the body 
when you're, whether you're thinking about the 32 parts of the body or the four elements or the nine charnel ground contemplations or any other way of thinking about mindfulness of the body, this does bleed into mindfulness of feeling because like I have a pain in my left knee right now and I can be mindful of that. I can notice oh, there's this diffuse pain in my left knee kind of going up my, going up my quad muscle right now. And that, that's also one part of mindfulness of the body and it's unpleasant. And I can see that that's unpleasant and I can make note of that. I don't have to react to it. And so that's mindfulness of the body and then based and mindfulness of feelings and based on our feelings, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, then the mind has, that's chitta nupassana, the mind reacts to the feelings. Like I, I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I want this to go away. And the mind has different states. We, we know we know what mind state the mind is in. And Dhammanupassana is you have like the five faculties and the six sense bases, the five khandas. This is like the 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 framework with all the other three satipatthanas. We use those a noble eightfold path. We use those in order to cultivate more mindfulness of the body. And uh, so I think they I think they all go together. Yeah. yeah. But I, for myself, I like to focus more on mindfulness of the body because it does just lead into the others naturally. And um, I, I find it very useful to do things like charnel ground contemplations where I'm imagining the body as a corpse and, and as a bones, like entry into not-self. That's an entry into anatta by imagining our... Uh, so much of our sense of self is built up with our face. Imagining just a skull and just bones on the ground it can be a good entry into anatta, into not self. Yes, I think they they kind of they all go together, but each person will have their own way also of interpreting it.